Dear Lord, thank you for this time uh, to meet together, to be together, to hear from your word, and to worship you, and to experience your presence together. We pray that you would uh, help us to get to know you deeper, and that you would bless this time of learning. And we thank you for your grace, and amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Um, the, the vision or the GCF vision is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on in a while, or at least not since Greg was teaching at RCF. So we've been doing this series for a while where we're trying to explain concisely what the GCF vision is. And so our vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants the church to rediscover and restore. And this has been going on, you know, for hundreds of years. The Reformation is in some sense the start of it, but it's a common thing that God is working in his church to cause the church to rediscover and restore things. So there's five of them that we're focusing on in this series. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and predent. Uh, presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. Um, so last week, we started on the fourth part of this series, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And last week, we, uh, so we're trying to start with the role of the church. What is the role of the church? What is God's purpose for a church? Why does he want a church? What's the point? Um, so we've been getting into that, and we're starting by looking at how the Bible describes the church, how God describes the church. And the Bible describes the church using word pictures a lot of times. So we've been looking at those. Last week we looked at four of them. We looked at how the church is uh, God's treasured possession. We looked at how the church is the temple of God. We looked at how the church is the bride of Christ. And we looked at how the church is the family of God. And so today we're going to look at four more word pictures that God uses to describe the church. So the first one that we're going to look at is that the church is the salt of the earth. That's one way God describes the church. Let's look at Matthew uh, 5, verse 13. You, all the, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under, foot, under people's feet. So that's an interesting statement. You are the salt of the earth. Has anyone ever told you that you're salt before? Sometimes people say that you're salty, but, but this is different. Christ is not describing his church as salty in modern terms. Not that type of salt. So I want to consider a, a few things that salt does. Uh, one of the biggest uses for salt, especially in Jesus' day, since they didn't have refrigerators and freezers, is to preserve things. How can you keep meat for a long time without a refrigerator or a freezer? Salt. With salt. Um, and so that's one aspect in which the church is like salt. Salt prevents decay or it hinders decay. Once an animal dies, its meat is decaying. That's just the process that's going on. But salt hinders that process, or it delays it, or it can, to some degree, stop that process. And the church, 
God wants the church to be preventing or hindering the decay of sinfulness in the world. That is one of the things God expects the church to be doing. That's one of his purposes for the church. That's one of the ways he's going to be using the church, is to prevent and hinder the decay of sin that's happening uh, all around us. But another thing that salt does that I want to point out is that salt causes thirst. Salt makes people thirsty. Anyone who's eaten at Casano's knows this. Salt causes thirst. And another word picture the Bible uses to describe the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is like water. And the church, uh, the church's presence should cause non-believers to thirst for the Holy Spirit. They should be able to look at the church and see the awesome things that the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us and in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, And that should cause thirst for the Holy Spirit because salt causes thirst. It's what salt does. It's inevitable. So the church is the salt of the earth. Let's look at the next word picture the Bible uses to describe the church. The Bible describes the church as the light of the world and individual churches as lampstands. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what does light do? In what way is the church like light? Uh, So there's a few things I want to focus on, but light reveals what's there. If it weren't for the fact that there's light in this room, I want to know how many people are sitting here. I want to know if anyone's sitting here. Except I know that John Luke is sitting here, because I can hear him. But, um. <laughs> but light reveals what's there. Without light, for the most of it, we don't know what is there. And there's two ways the church does that, reveals what's there, the church has light. The first one is that... Um, The church helps us to see truth. Let's look at 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is saying in this verse that the church is a pillar of truth. The church, because we should have God's word and we should know God's word and we should teach God's word, should help people to get to know truth. There's all kinds of non-truth around us today, but the church should be helping people to get to know truth. The church should be shedding light on the truth or revealing the truth. And another, so light helps us to see truth, but another specific thing light helps us to see is our sin. So light causes conviction. Let's look at John 3, 19 through 21. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Light shows what's there, whether there's what's ugly or what's pretty. And we all have sin, and sin's ugly, and we don't really want to see our sin. We don't want to acknowledge that we're sinful. It's not very fun to have to acknowledge to yourself that you're sinful. It's much easier to just kind of dismiss it and, uh, and allow your personal bias to hide your sin from you. Thinking about something without personal bias takes character. It takes emotional strength to a degree. It takes discipline. And, um, and we're, all humans are tempted to just dismiss their sin and not think about it. But the church, by being light, causes people to have to think about their sin. So light reveals what's there, and the church should be revealing what's there. The church should be helping people to come to know the truth, and the church's presence should be convicting people of sin. But another thing that light does is light drives out darkness. Light and darkness can't be in the same spot. Light wins. Darkness leaves. That's what happens. There's not much of a fight to it. Light drives out darkness. And the church's presence should be driving out demonic forces. The church has authority over demonic forces, and when the church is in a place, its presence should be driving out demonic forces. Now, we have to choose to obey God's commands. We have to be, doing, we have to be active in spiritual warfare, but the church's presence should be driving out demonic forces. So those are um, two things that... I think we're supposed to get from this idea that the church is the light of the world. Uh, but I also want to point out um, that the church is like, each local church is like a lampstand. Let's look at Revelation 1 verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in biblical imagery, God uses the picture of a lampstand uh, as a picture that describes the church. So what is a lampstand? Um, a lampstand isn't just... A lamp that stands, it's a, it's a stand where you place multiple candles, multiple small lights that collectively make a big light. And that's what the church is. That's what a local church is. No individual has enough light. No, small, no candle serves as a lamp, typically. A lamp stand is a collection of candles together. And as members of the church, we need each other. We need to work together. We need to be unified. We need to be meeting together. We need to have community if we're actually going to shine Christ's light to the world. So the church is the salt of the earth, and the church is the light of the world. But the next way we're going to look at, the next 
picture the Bible uses to describe the church is that the church is the body of Christ. This shows up very frequently in the scriptures. This is a big theme, and all the ways that the Bible describes the church, this one appears quite a lot. The church is the body of Christ, and that's a big deal in the Bible. Uh, Let's look at some scriptures. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So this verse is saying that the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head of the body. Let's also look at Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So this this is a very important way for us to understand the church, but what's the significance of it? What's the point? What does that even mean that the church is the body of Christ? What are we supposed to get out of that? So the first one is that the church is God's main agent of change in the earth. The church is God's main tool for causing change in the world. God could use whatever means he wants, whatever tool he wants. He could send angels out and not use the church. He could speak to everyone directly and not choose the church. But God chooses to work primarily through the church for changing the world. The church is God's main agent of change in the earth. And this body analogy somewhat shows that. Your body, your hands and feet, how do you do things in life? You use your body. To do things. That is the main way you do anything. I don't have the ability to get my cup of coffee to come to me by just thinking about it. I pick it up with my hands. My body is the main way I do anything in life. But there's a few other verses I want to point out that show this idea that the church is God's main agent of change in the earth. The church is the main way God works in the world. Uh, Let's look at the Great Commission. Let's look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus can send anyone to the nations to disciple the nations, but Jesus sends his church. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God has given the ministry of reconciliation to the church. He could have given it, you know, he could have given it to angels. He could have just done the whole thing himself. But he chose to give the ministry of reconciliation to the church. Let's look at Romans 10, uh, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will the, are they to believe in whom of him they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So somebody needs to be sent. The gospel needs to be declared so that people can hear it, so that people can believe it. But God sends his church, like we just looked at in the Great Commission. The church is God's main agent of change in the earth. It's the spirit working through the church, but the spirit is working through the church. That is what the Spirit wants to do. And we kind of see this idea that the church is God's main agent of change in the two earlier uh, word pictures we looked at with the church being light and the church being salt. Because the church is God's agent, God's tool for driving out darkness on earth. And the church is God's agent for preserving the earth against corruption. So God clearly wants to accomplish redemption. God wants to accomplish reconciliation through his church. But why? Uh, why does God care so much that it be through the church? Why does God want to use the church? Uh, there's a, th a few things I want us to look at as to why God wants to use the church specifically to accomplish reconciliation. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So one of the reasons God likes to use the church for reconciling the world to himself is because it shows his glory. His glory is shown in our weakness. We are weak people. We are sinful and flawed. Every member of the church is sinful and flawed everywhere. It's universal because we're, God hasn't made us perfect yet. But God delights to use sinful and flawed people for his purposes because then he gets the glory and not the person he's using. And he wants our focus to be on him. The Father seeks to glorify the Son and the Son seeks to glorify the Father. And God gets more glory by using weak people. And we're all weak people. We all... We all fit the job description. <laughs> Don't worry, you are not incapable of being used by God because you're not too perfect to be used by God. But I think there's another reason, maybe even a more important reason, that God likes to work through his church. Uh, God likes to work through his church because he wants to draw us into what he's doing, because that's an aspect of being intimate with him. Let's look at uh, John 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus not only makes it known to us what he's doing, what his intent is, what his mission is, what the important things on his heart are, but he brings us into it. He brings us into what's important to him. He gets us involved with what's important to him. And that's an aspect of being close to him. For church is the bride of Christ, and God wants his bride to be involved with what he is doing. In general, husbands enjoy when their wives take interest in the things they are interested in. A grown man who's good at hunting doesn't need his wife's help to kill a deer. But most men who enjoy hunting would still enjoy if their wives took an interest in hunting. In general, husbands enjoy when their wives take an interest in the things they're interested in. And Christ and God are quite interested in this reconciling the world thing they have going on. It's very important to him. And he wants it to be important to us because we're his bride. So there is very good reason God has for wanting to use the church as the main way he works in the world. He wants to work in the world through his spirit, working through his church. So that's, that's a very important point for us to understand about the church, is the church is God's main agent of change in the earth. But what else can we learn from this uh, this picture, this idea that the church is the body of Christ. Another important idea we should get from this idea that the church is the body of Christ is that we all have an important role to play. Everybody in the church has an important role to play. Every role is important, no matter how small it may appear. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 and 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Every role in the church is important, even if it seems small to us. And typically what seems small to us isn't small to God. Let's look at Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums of money. But a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which together add up to a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She probably at that moment didn't consider herself as having a role at all, but her example is an example in the scriptures. And it made a big impact. But moreover, it's important to God. Even if it didn't make the big impact that it ended up making, God values it. We need to value what God values more than what men value. 
Even if a person's role in the church really was small, which most of the time we just imagine and exaggerate how small our roles are, but even if it really was small, that, would be ins- that wouldn't matter because it's important to God. So everyone has an important role. Another thing uh, I want us to get, but it's kind of an aspect of everyone having an important role, is that we all need each other in the church. No, No Christian was designed to be totally independent from others. That's why God designed a church. God designed the body to be an example of the church, and no part of the body is capable of being totally independent. That's not how the body was designed, and that's not how the church was designed. No Christian is capable of living the Christian life independent from other Christians. And it's interesting how the way God designed the body kind of shows that. The parts of the human body aren't merely helpful to the person living in that body, but they're also designed to be helpful to each other. Have you ever thought about how helpful it is that you have two hands that are designed the opposite of each other? Not only, God could have given you just one hand, but he could have given you two left hands or two right hands. The fact that one hand has the other hand makes it easier for each hand. And not only that, but even the most useful parts of the body aren't that useful by themselves. The hand isn't super useful without the foot, and the foot isn't super useful without the hand. I'm glad I can pick up things, but if I couldn't walk anywhere to the things I want to pick up, it'd be hard to pick things up. But another aspect that, another thing we should learn from this idea that the church is the body of Christ is that we all need to be connected to the church. Every believer has the need to be connected to the church. What happens to a hand or to any part of the body once it gets disconnected from a body? It it dies, it decays, It's it's cut off from blood and oxygen. No part of the body can live without being connected to the body. Being connected to the body allows each part to not only get nourishment, but also allows it to be healed when it gets damaged. If you slip up and cut your hand in the kitchen, your hand heals, praise the Lord. But if it wasn't connect, if you really slipped up in the kitchen... and your hand was no longer connected to your body, it would not heal. Not without God's supernatural intervention, at least. So not all Christians need to be connected to the church. We have a need not just so that Uh, so that we can serve better, but it helps us to grow. Christians grow by being connected to the body. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So that's one way in which we need to be connected to a church so that we can grow is because God gives certain ministers in the church to help each member grow. 
but continuing in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Contrary to some common ideas today, you can't just grow how God wants you to as a Christian on your own, just you and God. Paul says in verse 16, when the body works together properly, the body builds itself up. You need fellowship with other Christians. You need godly fellowship with other Christians, and you're not going to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish or grow how he wants you to grow if you don't have it. We all need to be connected to the church, just like the hand needs to be connected to the body. Not only does a hand that gets disconnected from the body not really do anything, it doesn't grow. If someone loses part of their body while they're a child, their body will grow, but that part won't. We all need to be connected to the church. So the church is the body of Christ, and those are three important things we should learn from that idea, is that the church is God's main agent of change in the world. We all have an important role, and we all need each other, and we all need to be connected to the church. So the last uh, word picture we're going to look at today is that the church is God's army. The church is an army of God. Let's look at some scriptures that illustrate this idea. So the main way the scriptures describe the church as an army uh, is somewhat indirectly, but frequently the scriptures refer to Christians as soldiers. And what is a large group of soldiers? It's an army. So the church is an army. Let's look at 2 Timothy uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. First uh, Corinthians 9 verse 7. Who who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So we, we see examples in the scriptures where God describes Christians as soldiers. Let's look at Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. 
So frequently in the Bible, the Bible describes Christians as soldiers. So what should we get out of this idea that Christians are soldiers and that the church is an army? Well, the first thing we should get is that we are at war. And this isn't some uh, abstract idea. This isn't just an analogy. This war is real. Let's look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, sometimes when I think about the speed limit, I think, man, my struggles against the authorities. But that, that's not what this passage means. This is, talk, this is talking about demonic forces. And the church is at, ro- at war with these demonic forces. Forces that are trying to blind people, Christians and non-Christians alike. And we are commanded by God to fight against them. The church, part of the role, role of the church is to fight in this war. Because God likes to work through his church. And God intends on defeating um, satanic and demonic forces through his church. He doesn't need to use his church, but he wants to. Let's also look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ." We might not recognize the spiritual forces that are at work in modern America as well as we could. We tend not to. But they are real, and the war is real. There are demonic forces trying to keep people from hearing the gospel and trying to keep them from believing it and trying to keep Christians from growing to the point where they can share it and trying to get Christians to become trapped in addictions or to keep them from overcoming sin. This war is real and this war is important. So the first idea we should get from this picture that the church is God's army is that we are at war. The second idea that I think we should learn from this is that we as Christians should have a soldier's mindset. So what do I mean by a soldier's mindset? What is a soldier's mindset? Well, for one thing, soldiers at war tend to think that nothing is more important than this. When you're a soldier in a war, nothing is more important than that war. Nothing is more important than your relationship with God and the expansion of his kingdom. Nothing. And if you can't confidently say that your relationship with God and the expansion of his kingdom really are the most important things in your life, then you don't have a clear biblical view of eternity and of what God's kingdom is going to restore and of what it's trying to restore now. Your relationship with God and the expansion of his kingdom is the most important thing in your life. And we need to recognize that. And soldiers in war naturally recognize that at least while the war is going on, that's the most important thing. 
Until that war is over, that war is the most important thing. The second aspect of having a soldier's mindset is the idea that comforts and pleasures can be given up now and enjoyed when the war is over. A soldier, a soldier isn't primarily concerned with whether or not their life is fun and comfortable. They're primarily concerned with winning the war. Like we just looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, Paul says in verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Rather than being focused on how we can get the most enjoyment out of our time and our money, we should seek to get the best use for God's kingdom out of our time and our money. And that, so we really do need, should have that as an actual practical focus. And I do want to um, also say that doesn't mean never having leisure or never buying nice things. You know, Paul also says in one of the letters to Timothy that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God also gives us time for leisure. It says in the Psalms that God gives sleep or God gives rest to his beloved. God has infinite time and infinite money since he can create anything at will. So the bottom line of the Christian life isn't scarcity. Nevertheless, we are at war, and God wants us to value what he values, and the expansion of his kingdom should be a greater focus of our time and money in a real, tangible way than our enjoyment. And then the... Another aspect of how um, we should have a soldier's mentality is the idea that if God calls us to suffer as part of the Christian life, that should be something we are readily willing to do. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We don't have time to look up all the verses on it, but if you read, if you've read all of Paul's letters to the churches, Paul's light affliction compared to what most people go through wasn't all that light. But compared to what the enjoyment that is coming to Paul, it is light. You know, I've had some things I had to go through that I wasn't happy about, but I've never been stoned and left for dead. Praise the Lord. I've never had all my friends abandon me. I've never been shipwrecked. I've never even been bitten by a snake. Paul had much affliction, and the Christians he was writing to had much affliction. But this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's also look at Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So as Christians, not only should uh, our relationship with God and the expansion of his kingdom be the most important thing in our lives, but we should be 
willing and ready to suffer if necessary for his kingdom. We should be willing to make sacrifices for it. So in summary, uh, kind of just the sum of these four word pictures and you know, we're, we're examining these word pictures and we're trying to get an overall sense of what the Bible says about the church and what the role of the church is. So in summary of the word pictures of lo- we've looked at today, uh, I've got like two takeaways. The church is God's main agent of change in the world. That's something I hope we all remember forever and don't forget. If you forget the rest of the sermon, at least remember that the church is God's main agent of change in the world. Christ has really big things he wants to do in the world, but he wants to accomplish them through his church. He wants to accomplish them with his bride. He could do it any way he wants to, but he wants to accomplish them through us and with us. And then secondly, the church is an army of soldiers and we are at war. But it's a war that Christ is going to win. The Bible mentions many times how Christ's enemies will be crushed underneath his feet. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, one of the cool things about this uh, that we should consider is that since the church is the body of of Christ, we are his feet. Christ's enemies will be defeated by the church. Sin is going to be defeated by the church. And that may sound hard to believe. That might sound like a a big deal or something we're not used to, but it's biblical. And if, if you wonder about whether or not it's actually biblical, let's look at Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we are at war, but the war belongs to Christ, not to us, and he's going to win. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together and to learn about our role. We thank you that you value us and you treasure us and you want us to be involved in what you're doing because you love us and you want us and you enjoy us being close to you. Uh, We pray that you would help us to value what you value and to care about uh, our relationship with you and the expansion of your kingdom more than anything else in our lives. We thank you for your grace and your love for us. And amen.